I'm Christine Dolan, and I'm a journalist, and I know a lot of people know Mike Lindell because of some of the issues having to do with elections, but I know him in a different way. Last year, in the middle of the 2020 election, my back was killing me because I'm teleworking. So a friend of mine sent me a pillow that Mike Lindell manufactured, and it helped me to sit on a chair doing interviews, too many interviews during the day because we're all working off-site. And then this year, because we're working off-site and we, we all want to be comfortable, I tried Mike Lindell's slippers. Now, I'm a big one on slippers because I like comfort. I have worn moccasin slippers all my life. And when I tried Mike Lindell's slippers, I couldn't believe this because it really does have four layers of cushions. It's like having very loose tennis shoes on. And it's easy because you really do wear them all night long if you're working like me from the early hours of the morning to the late hours at night. So I highly recommend Mike Lindell's slippers and his pillows if you've got a back problem and you're sitting down. Now, how you get the discount for this is very simple. It's on our site. CDM is the promo code for it. Promo code CDM is what we're asking you to do. Again, you will feel comfortable for your back with those little pillows that he has and also for the slippers that you can get from him. And now let's get to our guests. So today in American Conversations, I want to introduce our audience to Jeremy Hammond, who is an independent journalist who believes in ethics and believes in honesty and taking a deep dive into a lot of topics. I ran across Jeremy in the, in the last uh, year and a half. Uh, he's done interviews with Bobby Kennedy. He's also written for Children's Health Defense on COVID. And um, I'm on a thread with him and, and several hundred people. And I just wanted I wanted to bring Jeremy on today because I think his, his voice is needed in discussing you know the medical tyranny as well as the, the lab leak um, or the, the market uh, leak in, in terms of COVID. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's let's begin. First of all, let's discuss your career because you are a man of ethics and taking a deep dive. And and I come from the old school of journalism when we used to do that. And I've you know I'm doing alternative uh, media now because it gives me more of a chance to 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 practice the fourth estate as I as I was taught and I believe it. So tell us tell us about your body of work first before we get into the COVID discussion. Yeah, I never intended to do this for a living. Um, I kind of fell into it accidentally and precisely because I felt that trained journalists, uh, professional journalists weren't doing their jobs. And so um, I really got started doing it after 9-11 and right before the Iraq war, um, where it started out as me just doing independent research and then just sharing the information that I was gathering and trying to put it together in a way for people um, to be able to consume it easily <clears throat> and just sharing information, you know, like, for, so I was opposing the Iraq war, telling people that, uh, you know, there was no evidence that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. This was a false pretext um, to commit a war of aggression to overthrow for regime change. Um, and, and of course, they tied that into 9-11, of course, and claiming that uh, Saddam Hussein had an operative relationship with Al Qaeda and, and on and on. Um, so that that was I was just opposing the war. I mean, I was just it was an activist. I was speaking out against the war and trying to convince people not to support the war, family members, friends. Um, and that's really how I got started until eventually somebody said, hey, you're sending all this information. Why don't you writing these articles and things? Why don't you just start a website and publish your stuff? So mm -hmm. I did. I started just publishing. I started submitting my stuff to, you know, alternative publications 
you know, like Counterpunch and Anti-War and, and places like that. Um, and uh, really spent a lot of, most of, you know, most of those years I spent focused on foreign policy. Um, eventually started writing more on economic matters and particularly the role of the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then in 2012, which is actually the year, I think that I wrote a book actually on, uh, that was got a rave review by Barron's uh, on the role of the Federal Reserve in the housing bubble. And that was the year my son was born. And so I started re- applying the research skills I had acquired to vaccines and wanting to be able to make an informed choice as a, as a parent, um, just researching the medical literature. And kind of once I went down that rabbit hole, it was kind of no turning back. I mean, I, I've in the last several years have shifted my focus entirely from um, my prior focus, which was foreign policy. Uh, particularly the Israel-Palestine conflict, onto the issue of vaccines, and then of course with the COVID nineteen pandemic. And you've written a couple of books on the on the Israel-Palestine conflict. I have several, yeah. The the biggest one being Obstacle to Peace: uh, the U.S. Role in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. Mm-hmm. So, and so yeah, and that's how I got into it. I just I, I was frustrated um, with what you hear on the media versus what reality is, and I felt like it was just like a duty, a responsibility to like get the truth out to people. So it was never, never something that I set out to do. It just kind of something that I, I ended up being good at doing, you know, like analysis, research analysis, and, you know, like, um, you know, doing like analysis where you, you take different conflicting pieces of information and then how do you reconcile it? Um, and it's just something that I, I ended up being good at. And so I just started doing it. <laughs> Good for you. I mean, I'm, I'm always I'm always interested in the passion of journalists because sometimes we get it. We become dogs with a bone on certain topics, and and it's a wealth of information that you have to sift through to figure out what is the truth and not the truth. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, COVID. When COVID broke, what were your first thoughts about uh, how it evolved the first six months or so? Uh, when it first broke out, I, I didn't think too much of it. I was in Taiwan actually when during the first SARS pandemic, uh, not pandemic, but the first SARS outbreak. Right. Uh, and I remember being like on the, on the the MRT there, the Mass Rapid Transit System there in in Taipei, and like being the only person on the on the train like not wearing a mask because I wasn't afraid of it, and I just, I just thought that it was such a huge overreaction, and and I, I just assumed that SARS-CoV-2 was going to be like SARS. Where it wasn't, you know, so highly transmissible and, and, and uncontainable, and um, uh, of course that ended up not being the case. And but but what really made me start paying more attention to it. So I didn't actually pay too much attention to it, like through January. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in February that the World Health Organization, um, I think it was late February, where they came out and and started pointing to China and, and China's lockdown in Wuhan as a model for the rest of the world, and that got my attention. And that woke me up and, and I just started like really, really at that point, like paying a lot of attention to this new virus uh, in anticipation of what was then to come, um, which was the lockdown regime and its end game of mass vaccination. And so by mid late February, I was really focused doing, a, you know, just everything I could read at that point, consuming information about it. Um, and then in March, of course, the lockdowns came. Uh, in April, I put out a couple of videos talking about how uh, one of them, the, one of the first ones I did, uh, was talking about how the media were reporting, you know, selling the lockdowns to the public on the basis of, you know, like two weeks to flatten the curve. And this mm-hmm. was based on the Imperial College London model, right? 
um, that that's you know that, where they had these projections of mass death. If they didn't lock down, so many people were going to die, and we could flatten the curve, you know, by staying at home for a few weeks and shutting and things down. And then there was an, there was another study that came out of uh, I think it was the University of Washington. Yeah, right. University of Washington also has you know they were big in the modeling, but the initial one that caused the UK government and the US government initially to like adopt the lockdown policies was the um, was primarily the, the, the Imperial College London model. But the media only reported that part of the study. They were they were claiming that oh, if we do this lockdown for you know a few weeks and then you mm -hmm. know we'll flatten the curve and that will prevent excess deaths from people not being able to get hospital care. That was the how it was sold. <clears throat> that was never the goal. That was never what it was about. Because if you actually go into that paper, and then what the media didn't talk about was the other part of that paper where they, where they where they say, well, if we do this just for a few weeks and then lift the measures, <laughs> the epidemic wave is going to come back, uh, and then we'll have to shut things down again. And they literally advocated doing that, like kind of easing the measures a bit to get people a little bit more, you know, of their normal life back, ability to go to work, things like that. Um, until, the, until, you know, the epidemic wave started to rise again and then they shut everything down. And it was just like, they, they talking about the economy, like it was a light switch that you can just turn on and off. Mm -hmm. and they actually had a graph showing that, you know, of, of the lockdowns going on and off. Uh, with the end game goal being, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep people in this, consistent lockdown until we can roll out a new vaccine until we can develop manufacture and and mass market a, a vaccine for covid-19 that was always the stated explicitly stated right. end game the media never reported that the media ne never said oh well we're, we're going to sell the these, these policies to the public on the grounds that oh, we're going to lock down indefinitely until or we can create or new vaccines and then everyone can get vaccinated or we're going to create a situation where Vax is the only answer because you're going to be so frustrated with the policy. And you're going to be coerced into getting it because right. we're not going to relieve these these policies, these authoritarian measures until you get the vaccine. I mean, had they come out and said that from the beginning, had they accurately reported what was in the modeling paper, you know, I don't think that they ever would have gotten the, the they would never have manufactured the consent for the lockdowns in the first place. And so I, you know, I don't was think. I don't think that the people, if I remember the exchange several times between Jim Jordan and Fauci and saying, well, how many people have to be vaccinated and when is herd immunity going to be happening? And Fauci never came out and said, our intention is to vaccinate 7 billion people, everyone on the planet. Right. If he just said that instead of wishy-washy and setting this up like Vax was the only answer, our intention is to do this. Right. I think more people would have woken up faster and people would not have been confused. Because if you go back and do the analysis of what Fauci was saying or what Bright was saying or Brooks was saying, I mean, it really, over time, you can see the inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now I think there are more people that actually question this, but whether or not they realize the harm that's been done is a whole nother question now. What have you learned so far that you think that uh, the American public or the public in general, because, you know, when we talk about the U.S. pharmaceuticals, it's that the market isn't just contained here in the United States. We're shipping this stuff overseas. So what, what do you think the public needs to know about the, the medical tyranny and the fraud that they have? Well, missed? I, I think, you know, the, the assault on our right to informed consent is really the, my biggest issue. I mean, every article I write really revolves around that 
key point. You know, I mean, we're called anti-vaxxers, right, for criticizing public vaccine policy, but we have no problem with vaccines per se. They're a pharmaceutical product like any other drug or a medical product. Um, it's up to the individual to decide whether it makes sense in terms of a risk-benefit analysis to use that product or not. Every individual needs to make their own informed choice. And so I'm pro-informed consent. Um, and this really is the, the core issue to me. Um, it's why I started writing about vaccines. You know, it wasn't, I had some criticism of vaccines per se. It was the policies I'm always criticizing. Uh, and and it's, it, the policies really do constitute an assault on this fundamental human right. Incidentally, I just, um, there was a paper uh, that I had authored that was published. Um, it's a written statement from an NGO. I authored on behalf of the NGO. That is a, an official UN document now, a written statement to the UN um, Human Rights Council on right. the specific topic, uh, in describing why uh, COVID-19 vaccine mandates are not about public health. Logically, it stands to reason that they, that they cannot be about public health. They are about power control and profits for the pharmaceutical industry. And I think this is really the big thing that people need to understand is that these government health agencies, the CDC, the NIH, NIAID, uh, Anthony Fauci's organization, uh, Burks, all these people, they, they do not have our best interests in mind. They are politicians, they're bureaucrats, um, and they have their own conflicting interests. Anthony Fauci being a perfect example as head, head of NIAID has literally partnered with Moderna in the development of its vaccine. Uh, government has a financial stake in COVID-19 vaccines owns patents mm -hmm. used in the development of, of that vaccine. Uh, and so uh, we, we really need to maintain our skepticism when we're told things, when we're said experts say, or the CDC says, um, you know, is the CDC credible? We're supposed <laughs> to uphold the CDC as this, you know, like authoritative agency. But the thing is, is like the CD has, has been demonstrably lying to the public from the very start. And the best example I can think of that off the top of my head is uh, is their lies about natural immunity. When the vaccines were first authorized for emergency use in December 2020, the CDC at that time was saying that the evidence indicated that natural immunity was short-lived, which was right. untrue. At mm -hmm. that, by that time, studies had already shown that antibodies, contrary to earlier reports, actually were persistent. After a normal, natural, uh, rapid decline after the acute phase of infection, completely normal. Nothing, that was not an indication that people were losing their immunity. The, the, the degradation of anti circulating antibodies plateaued mm -hmm. and persisted in, in, in the cir circulation uh, in the vast majority of people who recovered. So the antibodies were not disappearing. Um, there were cellular immune responses that were even more important um, for, for prevention of severe disease. Um, that had been established. Uh, and, and the indications were that it induced long-term immunologic memory with uh, indu induction of long-lived bone marrow plasma cells, which are a known immunologic marker of long-term immunity. That's what the evidence showed at the time. And the CDC was saying that evidence indicated that uh, it was short-lived. Uh, and that that assumption, you know, the indications of long-term immunity were confirmed in May that indeed it, infection does induce those bone marrow plasma cells. Um, and so the so CDC. You, so, you were, yep. so you were analyzing what what the, what what they were calling science. You're right. actually going to the weeds of it and saying that's not the conclusion that they found in the science. So you're you're questioning what is the motive behind it. Looking at this as you analyze it. Right. I, I mean, they're saying one thing, and this is a point I always make. You know, that like what the 
government officials and the media say science says and what the science actually says are two completely different irreconcilable things and that's this was a perfect example of that where the cdc was saying something that was literally contradicted by the vast the overwhelming evidence in the scientific literature uh, and getting away with it mm -hmm. um you know right up through you know just in just in january just a couple months ago the cdc finally um cdc researchers published a study acknowledging what the, what the CDC had lied about in August, starting in August, they had, the CDC was started to claim explicitly, it had been doing so implicitly up until that point, but in August, it changed and started explicitly August claiming. August 2021. August, August 2021, yep. Explicitly claiming that the vaccine induced superior protection. At that time, Delta was already predominant in the United States. CDC has now acknowledged that that statement wasn't true. It, not, they didn't come out and say what we said then wasn't true, but they just, published a study in, in January acknowledging that, yeah, people who had recovered from infection had better protection against the Delta variant than fully vaccinated individuals. So now I, having acknowledged that yet a data show that natural immunity is superior protection um, after having lied about it for so long, um, it's just a perfect, of course, they couldn't maintain that lie indefinitely. I mean, it, the well, truth had they, to come out for eventually. They tried though. I, I remember talking- they tried. They tried and they tried really hard because I remember talking to people after the early rollout. So this is around six months and six or seven months into it, around June 2021. I said to a couple of people in, I asked a couple of people in Fauci's circle, you know, what did they think of the rollout? And that's when they were, and I had already spoken to some vax injured and they were telling me that they were urban legends. And they were telling me that if they, there were 6 million uh, vaccination shots and 325,000 of them had blood clots. They have treatment for blood clots, quote unquote. And I said, well, that's interesting, but try that on another journalist because I had not interviewed anyone with just blood clots or just one injury. These were multiple injuries and their doctors didn't know how to treat them at the time. And I also asked these guys, well, what about, you know, what about the messaging and, and about these shots? And they told me at the time, and this is before we had the breakthrough cases, but they all said to me, you know, we, we're not doing as good a message on the fact that there's no transmissibility. And I thought, huh. But then we, you know, if they had accepted that and emphasized that, we would have found out by August that that, that, was, a, that was a lie because there were breakthroughs cases. Yeah. I, I don't think again, they knew how to do their messaging. I think that's part of the problem. Cause I, I know that when I was covering yeah. this in 2020 and, and you know, since it, it's, they say something, you go to the weeds of the research, you talk to some other people in the arenas and it's contradictory because they know that they don't have the backup research for some of the claims that they make and the pronouncements they make publicly. Yeah. I mean, the lockdowns are an example of that in addition to the vaccines where you know, they sold again, they sold the lockdowns to people on the grounds that if we implement these measures, it will have this effect. Right. Right. On on hospitalizations and deaths. And it's clear. I mean, you can debate. You know, there's some evidence either way. You can there's studies that suggest that they did have some positive effects, studies that suggest that they had no effects, studies that suggest that they had a negative effect just mm -hmm. in terms of like mortality, not, not even looking at all the, you know, the, the economic consequences and the health consequences, negative effects, just setting all that aside and just looking at COVID-19 and the effects in terms of the hospitalizations and deaths. 
you know, but what's clear, you can have that argument and that discussion and that debate. But what is absolutely clear and incontrovertible is that the, the effects that they claimed these measures would have were never manifested in the data. That's unequivocally true. That That's they claim that these would have they would have such a huge effect, and yet it's 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 the fact that it's even debatable <laughs> shows that what they claimed the effects would be were not what the effects were. So they didn't have the benefit that they claimed, and they have they certainly had you know again also unequivocally true, incredibly you know huge, disastrous, harmful consequences. And so even giving them all of the, the best evidence to support their position, you know, the lockdown advocates position, even if we give them all of, give them whatever studies they want to rely on and, and just grant them that and, and it's just assume that that data is accurate and it provides us a good picture of the effects of these measures. Even if we give them that, it's still very easy to make the, to, to the argument that, uh, in fact, I think it's indisputable that these, uh, these lockdowns had the, the, the harms greatly outweighed any possible potential benefit. So and of course, the benefits are arguable. <laughs> right. And, and so you have been looking at this since 2008 when your son was born. It, 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 parental concern. 2012. Yeah. 2012. Uh, so how do you feel if, you, if you're not allowed to make a choice for your child? Under, you know, because that's, that's the movement here now. Take away the yeah. parents' rights to decide. What's your reaction to that? Uh, it, it, it infuriates me. I mean, if we've made the decision to homeschool our son from the beginning. We've been homeschooling him. That's certainly one of the reasons, not the only reason. There are many reasons we decided to homeschool. Um, but just the ability to have freedom and not being pressured and coerced into making medical decisions on behalf of our son that we didn't agree with, that we didn't feel were in the best interests of our son. Um, so I really sympathize with parents who are in a position where they are being coerced through state mandates to to follow the cdc's schedule um you know that's it's unacceptable that this exists the situation exists uh in the united states again informed consent doesn't happen and i say that for two reasons so uh informed consent is not happening in the u.s in the u.s number one because there's coercion and there's pressure and there's mandates uh and that's a direct violation of informed consent and also people, there's nobody on the planet that can say what the long-term effects are of these shots. Yeah, and that's the second reason why I say there's no informed consent is that people aren't informed. And, and in fact, they make decisions, even, even if they, in their minds, are willingly and voluntarily accepting vaccination, mm -hmm. um, they're doing so on the basis of misinformation and disinformation that they've received from the government and from the mainstream media. And incomplete information. It's either incomplete. I mean, they're, they're, they're telling or you wrong. That you know, all the answers. You're, you're you're participating in informed consent, but they're lying because you you cannot right. have informed consent if you don't know the long term effects. Right, and you know, that goes back to what we were just discussing about, um, you know, like the, the way that the the vaccine, the COVID nineteen vaccines, were sold to the public originally. Again, they were tied to the lockdowns mm -hmm. from the start as as the end game of the lockdowns. And then they were sold to the public on the grounds that this was the path to herd immunity. This was how we were going to end the pandemic was with these vaccines. People were told that with two doses of an mRNA vaccine, they would have, you know, very strong immunity. They never suggested that, oh, you know, you're going to you're going to have to get, you know, initially there was no, no talk of booster doses at all. It was two doses. And that was the path to herd immunity. In other words, they were claiming that COVID-19 vaccines would induce long 
term durable sterilizing immunity, meaning immunity that protects you from infection, not just moderating disease severity, but actually blocking the infection with neutralizing antibodies. That, of but course, we know never, not now. But that, that was, was not true. Well, not only that, right. it wasn't true, but that wasn't their end goal. Their end goal was to get everybody to get vaccinated on the planet. Their end goal is to continue with the programs that they have had in place for quite some time, yep. which is funding an international consortium of scientists and researchers to go out and hunt the bats or whatever these people do in, in the bush, bring it back to the lab and figure out what can be combined to be transmissible to create vaccinations for boosters for, for an ongoing pharmaceutical economic model. I mean, that, that is really what they want. And now we're at the point where the discussion is moving to, and this is in Fauci's camp, it's in Schwab's camp at Davos, that they want to have an international treaty focusing on the um, pandemic preparedness so that it's like the climate accord, Paris accord, the climate treaty. I mean, that's if they can't get it one way, then they're going to try for something else and have it mandated as if one shoe hits all, one shoe fits all, all over the world. Yeah, they want to have greater centralized power. They want to have more centralized power because I think one of their frustrations from, again, from the perspective of the lockdowners. Right. Is that, you know, there was too much freedom of individual jurisdictions to decide whether to implement those measures and to what extent and to what severity. And they didn't like that. They want to just everyone just obey, shut, stay at home, shut down the businesses, um, you know, wear your masks everywhere. I mean, they just they just want to have absolute total control. And so it, it's about centralization of power. And, it's you know, on the point you just made, that's not like some kind of conspiracy theory. I mean, right. Peter Daszak, who was the uh, the guy from, uh, you know, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, which was the group that was funded by the NIAID, uh, funded by Anthony Fauci's organization, and and also the NIH was the parent organization, parent agency of the NIAID, were funding EcoHealth Alliance, which then redistributed um, funding to researchers in, in uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Who were and, other and other labs. And other labs. Uh, North Carolina, uh, Barrick, Ralph just... Barrick out of North Carolina, working together with, um, you know, Barrick worked with the people in Wuhan on and it's these been, types it, of studies. People have to it's, understand, it's not just Eco Alliance. It's not just NIH and NIAID. It's not just the Chinese government and the Chinese lab. There are labs like this all over the world. And there's countries like the Norwegian government who have given money to this. So this is, this, this is not conspiracy. These are facts, but it's hard for people to wrap their brains around it because it's not on their kitchen table yet. Right. It will be. It will be. Well, it was it was prohibited. Uh, you couldn't talk about it on social media in April uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, Facebook updated its its policy guidelines to prohibit anything that suggested that there was a lab origin of SARS-CoV-2. Right. Uh, and so that was I mean, it was just they just tried to shut down the discussion. There was a, a paper in The Lancet that was published. February, uh, just an article that, that came out like this, you know, yeah. like saying we need to shut down this this discussion of lab origin. That's a conspiracy theory and it's nonsense. And we know this this virus just evolved in nature and it's a natural event. And one of the guys we later found out um, through a freedom of information request, I believe, um, that one of the people like orchestrating that article was 
Peter Daszak from Equal not, Alliance. Not only that, but when I first saw that article, I actually, this is February 2020, I actually reached out to some people whose names were co-authors on that. And they were telling me the business model and what was actually going on and the evolution and the predict project and the Rome project and, and the other project, the genome project that Collins had been involved with. And I didn't have the context then because it was the, the very beginning of the COVID coverage. But then as time rolled on, I saw the importance of that information. This is something they don't want the public to realize. And, and I started asking myself probably mid mid 2020, why is this Frankenstein science happening? Why, why is anybody, I mean, th this should be outlawed because it's so dangerous. If you're going out into the wild and you're bringing animals into a lab and then you're going to stick them with X, Y, and Z and find out what coronaviruses are in those that can be transmittable to human beings. I mean, why would they do that? To create a market of disease so that then they can create, you know, pharmaceuticals or vaccinations to correct that which they are creating? I mean, that's that's yeah, pure. Yeah, I gave an interview um, where he said that that was one of the purposes of the research that they were conducting right. was to be able to develop vaccines for a potential, you know, emergent. Corona, well, coronavirus. Coronavirus. They, they have they have already discovered several thousand coronaviruses, but they claim that there's like six to eight hundred thousand. And the purpose of doing this and now it's, now it's morphing into uh, a public private partnership with governments all over the world because they don't want governments to shut it down. And I'm thinking to myself, this is bioweapons. Why are we doing this? So when you're writing to the UN and you're focusing now on the human rights angle of this, what is the UN's position on all this? Because I mean, WHO comes under the UN and if they're profiting and dictating policy that's created by something like this, how does that all fit in? Because the UN is part of the problem here too. Yeah, actually, this is the second document that I had authored on behalf of this NGO uh, that uh, this one focused on COVID-19 vaccine uh, right. mandates specifically. But the first one I did, published a couple years ago now, um, earlier in the pandemic, um, was just about vaccine mandates generally. Mm -hmm. Right. And I talked about how the UN was part of the problem, how the, the UN itself was responsible for violating uh, the right to informed consent, how the WHO was responsible for violating the right to informed consent. And I give examples. Uh, so for example, the, one example was UNICEF, the U United Nations Children's Fund, um, praising the Maldives government for implementing a very strict vaccine mandate, like forcing parents. So they had no options. They had to vaccinate according to the, the recommended schedule there. Otherwise they could, they would be penalized. Like mm. it was like a criminal offense <laughs> to not do that. And which, which is a very clear violation of the right to informed consent. And yet here you have the United Nations praising that law. There's one example. Another example, the World Health Organization had sponsored uh, a trial for a malaria vaccine in Africa, um, where the, the parents of children who were enrolled in that trial had not been given informed consent. Most specifically, most egregiously, they had not been told that earlier trial data for that vaccine indicated that it showed that that vaccine was associated with an increased risk of childhood death. It's particularly pronounced among girls. Uh, they weren't told that. And so there wasn't informed consent. 
And so, I, you know, this document, the, the first one I had written, um, really focused on that and on how it was really rebuking the UN organization itself and the WHO itself for violating, going against what they're supposed to be doing. You know, under international law, there are treaties actually that recognize the right to informed consent and codif it's codified in law. And these treaties are supposed to protect, they're right. supposed to prevent governments from being able to implement policies like this. And yet the UN and the WHO themselves are absolutely part of the problem. Um, so that was actually the first document that I had written that was published as a UN document um, was on that particular issue is how well, those agencies are part of the problem. They're violating their own rules of engagement. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So uh, have you ever gotten a response from the UN for these papers that you've submitted? Uh, you know, I, I haven't really been involved other than, you know, like, I'm not affiliated with um, uh, the, 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 the NGO that I authored on these papers on behalf of. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wasn't really involved in any of that process. Uh, they, like the NGO, I was just contacted by somebody from the NGO and, and said, you know, hey, they reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in, in, in writing something up that we would submit to the UN as a written statement? And uh, I couldn't turn on that opportunity, so I accepted. So I, I don't know the details of, like, for example, you know, like you ask, you know, how how was it? What was the response mm -hmm. to the statement from the from the UN or from the Human Rights Council? I, I don't know those details, um, but I am certainly proud to have been part a part of getting those documents out into the public and getting them published. So if you go to the UN docs, um, UNDocs.org, uh, you know, you can search any any document by its its title. Uh, and so those documents are available on that website. How do people get in touch with you, Jeremy? Tell them about your website and, and, and the books that you've written because you are a prolific sure. writer. Yeah, you can find me at uh, jeremyrhammond.com. So I, I use my middle initial and in my my writing name, my pen name. Um, so it's jeremyrhammond.com. And uh, once you're there, any page of my website, you'll see a sign up form to get on um, to receive my newsletters. So I highly encourage people to um, stay up to date with my work. I also send a lot of content just exclusively to subscribers. So if you're not on my newsletter, you're kind of missing out on a lot, a lot of what I write. Um, so that's where you can find me. Do you um, think? And then my books. Yep. Tell them about, I was just going to say, tell them about your books. Yeah. So again, I, I used, used to focus more on foreign policy issues. So um, one of my books I'll, I'll, I'll mention is, uh, again, Obstacle to Peace, the U.S. role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is uh, kind of my magnum opus uh, on, on that issue. Uh, or on foreign policy in general, because actually it touches on, on other foreign policy. You know, I discussed Libya, I discussed the Syria interventions. Um, I, I touch on other, um, you know, U.S. interventions in the Middle East, uh, all relatedly, all ties right back into the Israel-Palestine conflict. So there's that book. But more recently, again, I've shifted my focus really entirely now to medical, you know, health freedom. Uh, and so my more my most recent book is The War on Informed Consent, The Persecution of Dr. Paul Thomas by the Oregon Medical Board. Tell the audience about Paul, because some of them may not know about Paul. It's a very interesting story. Go ahead. Yeah, so people who do know him probably know him best as the author of the uh, the Vaccine Friendly Plan, which is a book that, you know, it it's it's a basically a guide to help parents through the, the, the tough decision-making process when it comes to vaccines, really trying to give them information to help them make an informed choice. Um, it, it does present an example alternative schedule, and, and the, the key... Um, the key point of his alternative schedule, which is not like some other alternative one-size-fits-all solution. It was just kind of an example of this is something, this is a way you could do it. But obviously, he's for, very much for individualized care. 
And in, in, this is this shows up in this patient data where, you know, it's not like children either got all the CDC schedule or they got no vaccines or they followed his alternative, you know, vaccine friendly plan. It wasn't like was, that at all. Was was very variably vaccinated. You know, was making Mm-hmm. So, the, the, but the idea, one of the, the central idea was, you know, just to to reduce or eliminate, if possible, the exposure to aluminum. So, aluminum, of course, being a, an adjuvant used in in vaccines, an adjuvant being a, a substance that's put in the vaccine to help induce a more inflammatory, uh, you know, a stronger immune response with downstream production of antibodies. So, essentially, they put it in there to be able to get the antibody levels up to where they need to be to get regulatory approval basically. Um, and so, and of course, aluminum being a, a known neurotoxin, I mean, with studies showing, you know, the studies um, finding aluminum to be associated with all kinds of problems, neurological harms, um, you know, and, and the, the amount of aluminum following on the heels of, of the, the CDC uh, schedule, exposing children to levels of mercury before the removal of thimerosal around the turn of the century, Throughout the 90s, the CDC schedule was exposing children to levels of mercury in excess of the government's own safety guidelines. Right. So, and, and now you have a situation where children receive upwards of 72 doses. If they follow the schedule, it's like 72 plus doses of vaccines by the time they're 18. And many of these vaccines contain aluminum, aluminum adjuvant, pertussis vaccine, uh, hepatitis B vaccine. These are aluminum adjuvanted uh, vaccines. And so the, the, the level of exposure that children have to a known neurotoxin is very alarming. And so this is one of the goals of, of his vaccine-friendly plan is to kind of, you know, help guide people through. And he provides that alternative schedule just to reduce the, the, the level of mercury, or I'm sorry, uh, aluminum that children are exposed to. Uh, and of course, mercury still being in flu shots. So he's the author of that book. Um, he's a pediatrician out in Portland, Oregon. He, uh, in my book, I describe how his journey, he went through a process of awakening, um, you know, started out going to med- you went to medical school, learned learned all the usual stuff that that doctors learn in medical school. You know, he describes how doctors really learn very little about vaccines. It, it's basically the same thing we get from our you know our high school textbooks about how well, I think, I think, you know doctors, how great they are. No, but doctors have have always known that they don't that they got minuscule amount of, of education about vaccines. What the public doesn't know is that they that they got that because the public yeah. doesn't go to medical school. Right. And the public is told that we can trust our doctors and we should, you know, doctors are experts and we should listen to the experts. Um, but he talks about how that, that that's not true. It wasn't true for him. And then he only really and then after, even after he once he was through with medical school and he got into practicing, um, of course, he had no time to do his own research. But he describes that process of, you know, um, it was actually Andrew Wakefield uh, and that, that paper, the 1998 paper everyone has heard about in The Lancet that was eventually retracted. Um, he, he actually credits Andrew Wakefield for kind of, you know, uh, being that light that kind of clicked on in his mind, that light bulb clicking on of, gosh, you know, he never considered the possibility of vaccines like inducing like long term harms. You know, we always, there's the adverse events that are temporarily associated with the vaccine fever right. and whatnot that everyone knows about. But, you know, he, he describes not having really even considered that. And so he, he that's the point where he started like researching himself and actually taking the time to go into the scientific literature and actually study vaccines and research them because right. he didn't and learn he, it in medical school. Then he, <laughs> then he did a study of vax versus unvax. Yeah. And once again, 
anybody who differs with the, the narrative that comes out of the FDA or the CDC, even if they're an accomplished pediatrician, they went after Paul. The, the cabal yep. went after Paul. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, he, I, he, I, he and Dr. James Lyons Weiler published a study using his patient data. They got institutional right. review board approval to use the de-identified data for this study. Right. Um, it was published. Um, and it, what it showed was that uh, that the children in his practice who were completely unvaccinated, never received a single vaccine, had much lower incidence of uh, diagnosis and office visits for uh, a broad range of, of health conditions. Whereas the variably vaccinated patients in his practice, you know, had higher incidence. So, which very strongly suggested that the unvaccinated children were the the healthiest patients in his practice. By by a long by you know, a long shot. <laughs> um, so much healthier they appeared to be. And um, so it was a very good study. It was very robust. I was very actually impressed with the uh, with the strength of the study. Uh, it was retracted eventually. Um, I think it was August uh, of last year. It was actually retracted. However, the, the, the editors didn't provide a reason for the retraction. They just said that there were complaints about the study and they didn't actually, they didn't justify the retraction by point, you know, they didn't point to something like, oh, well, there was this flaw to. in the data or there's this Jeremy, flaw in the findings. Jeremy, they're not going to because it's so corrupt. I mean, the one thing that I have yeah. found out in the last two years that I find shocking and disgusting is the fact that the, the, the what we call the healthcare system, the medical industry is so corrupt. It's like the mafia. And that's yeah. the part that I don't think that the American public or most of the public on this planet understand that people are yeah. bought and sold. And I tell mm -hmm. everybody to read the book Empire of Pain because a lot of people can relate to opiate addiction. They know somebody who's, who's gotten addicted on it. Some people have died. Some people have committed suicide. Some people become heroin addicts. OK, we, but we all know somebody connected to that. And that's the most recent wave of the scandals that can resonate with people. But Empire of Pain is about the Sackler family. It's about the history of not the current Sackler family, but the generation ahead of that. When Arthur Sackler and his two brothers set up the Purdue company and before it was a Purdue, but they set up their own um, journals and they basically were PR firms where they, their company would be producing uh, medicine and then they would have a review about it in one of their journals. And a lot of people didn't know back in the 50s and 60s that in fact, this, this was what was going on. Now, if you take a look at the broad picture of the medical and the pharmaceutical industry, it's the same thing. I mean, I've had people call me up and say, well, Christine, you know, you don't think that pharmaceuticals are in the business of health. I said, no, they're in the business of profits. They are selling drugs. They're not the doctors. They have successfully created a situation where your doctors cannot decide what is best for your body. So the doctor-patient relationship yeah. has been yeah. nuked. They, most of these doctors are scared to death to speak out because now that I understand the medical board situation here in the States, that's corrupted too. That's hurt doctors. It's hurt the patients. It's hurt health. Uh, right. And Which, these, doctors, these doctors are robots. Yeah. And now we. Yeah. The, the great thing about this COVID pandemic, plandemic, whatever you want to say about it. It has exposed the warts of corruption to yeah. the point where it is affecting people and people are more willing to speak out because it, it has just broken their moral consciousness. Yeah, that's one of the benefits. I mean, that's one of the positive outcomes of 
what's happened with COVID-19 is the fact that there has been an awakening more and more people. I mean, it's become part of the prior to the pandemic, as you well know, like if, if you just dared to question CDC vaccine policy, you were, you were dubbed some kind of conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, you know, there's, there's, it's part of the public discourse, the question of the CDC's credibility. I mean, it, it's so that, and that, and that's a good thing. That's a positive development. Right. You know, from one perspective, they say, oh, well, we need people to trust public health authorities, but the, no, the you thing don't. is, is no, like, you don't. no, we don't because they're not worthy of our trust. So why should we trust them? Well, not only <laughs> that, but I think people should trust authority. And I think that when you have, when you have uh, governments and corporations in bed with one another and, and there's a, there's a level of corruption, that's fascism. That's what Mussolini, that's why Mussolini worked. That's why Hitler was able to do the harm that he did. All right. It's when you are not allowed to question. And I think that everybody has has the right to question. And I think that everybody has the right to, for their own medical decisions. I think I, I, I guess as a journalist, I was surprised when I saw my homeland turn into a third world country over COVID. I was stunned. I've traveled all over the world, but I never thought that I would see it happening in my own country. Well, you know, another thing people need to be aware of because they always talk about the science and the science, mm -hmm. this, the science that <clears throat> studies show um, is that there really is like a science industrial complex in, in the country. And in the, the journals themselves are part of the problem. The peer review process itself is part of the problem. And this gets back to what I was saying about that uh, Dr. Paul Thomas's uh, paper being retracted without any basis, um, you know, that really was very clearly to me a political decision had nothing to do with the quality of the study. And they went after his license. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then, of course, right after, again, to the, speaking to the point, right after that study was published, the Oregon Medical Board uh, emergently suspended his license, mm -hmm. which, again, was a very clear message to other doctors. Like, you Don't better not respect your par the parent's right to informed consent. You'd better push the CDC's schedule on them. If you don't, we're going to take away your license. That, mm -hmm. was, that was the message to doctors in the state of Oregon. And the so other... Again, the, the other upside to to this monstrosity of pulling back the onion of corruption in, in these industries is that a wellness industry is going to evolve from this. People are not going to trust their doctors. They're going to trust the doctors that have had their medical license suspended yep. because they wrote too many exemptions because they believed in the patient-doctor relationship versus those who robotically were involved in the medical community. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the the astounding amount of, I guess, fraud and corruption we've found out about the hospital administrators, the nursing homes. I mean, I, I'm at the point, I don't know where you are as a journalist, but every time I hear somebody's doing a COVID event, I ask them, how much money did you make? Or somebody is so pro ignoring the real science. I say, and how much are you being paid? Because the amount of money that's being doled out is extraordinary. Well, that's actually another point um, relating to Dr. Paul Thomas is, is uh, he, him and again, they had another study, uh, James Lyons-Weller and him also did a, a separate study just looking at the question of how much income did he forego by not vaccinating all his patients according to the CDC's schedule. And it was, it was, I don't remember the number, but it was, you know, six, you know, it was millions of dollars, you know, over a million. Um, and I don't forget the, the number again, I forgot the number, but um, you know, an extraordinary amount of of income that he had foregone by choosing to respect parents' right to informed consent, rather than pushing the CDC schedule on them. Right. 
um, and mainly like just administrative fees that even, you know, doctors, uh, because there's the Medicaid provides supposedly free vaccines for, for everyone. Of course, it's not free. Um, but, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, vaccinations are paid for through the uh, vaccines for children program from the, with the CDC through the, through the Medicaid program. Uh, but, but doctors still charge like administrative fees and things. And so, uh, you know, just just from all the financial incentives that be, this is really the key lesson from this, this paper that they published was that, you know, doctors have a financial incentive mm -hmm. to promote pharmaceutical products, including vaccines. Um, and so, we you know, we can't pretend as though that's not the case. The same as with COVID-19, you know, where hospitals were incentivized uh, to, to diagnose people with COVID-19. So they might've come into the hospital for some other reason. They got a PCR test. Now suddenly they're a COVID-19 patient, right? Next well, thing not, you know, not they're only, on an intubator. <laughs> well, that's true. And then they got paid for that too. So, I mean, and for a right. policy that was, that was killing people. That, that, that's right. the Remdesivir one. was the only, uh, you Remdesivir know. is the only one that's out there. And that there's a higher risk of dying from that because it shuts down your kidneys. Yeah, it is. It is extraordinary. It's extraordinary to cover. Jeremy, the thank you. The suppression of all, all other treatments, hydrochloroquine and iver ivermectin. I mean, the corruption goes so deep. Right. I mean, it's it's just, it's astonishing. And then, you know, this is a thing I just wrote about um, recently. There was a study and this is how they get away with it, you know, the, because so there was a study that came out and then all the headlines and all the health health science publications and the mainstream media where new study shows that ivermectin doesn't work. And you go and you look at the findings of the study. And actually, it showed that that the people who were ivermectin treated had a, had a, a, a much lower risk of dying. It was like 69% lower risk or something compared to the people who, who had standard of care alone and no ivermectin. The thing was, is it didn't reach statistical significance. If they had, they used a 90% confidence interval rather than a 95% confidence interval, it would have been statistically significant. So that arbitrary decision to have the cutoff of 95%, the p-value of 0.05, meant non-statistical significance. And yet the findings well, indicated that ivermectin works. And so they would just all, so it's very possible that the reason it didn't reach statistical significance is their study wasn't powered statistically to show significance. And they cite that as, as proof that ivermectin doesn't work. I mean, the corruption, it's just, it's well, crazy. It's, the authors of the study themselves propagated that false conclusion. They're paid for that. Let, let, let's bottom line it. They're paid mm -hmm. for that. Okay. And then they make right. it, they make it so much. If you don't understand statistics, if you don't know how to read a medical journal, if you don't right. want to believe that the medical journals are, are paid for, published for, that they in fact are in favor of everybody Especially. that was involved with that, that Danzig, uh, engineered article in February 2020 is involved in some form or fashion with the Fauci crowd, Collins crowd, all of the, uh, the Predict Project, all this Frankenstein science. I mean, it is it's extraordinary I mean, to me, just the depth and breadth of this thing worldwide. And I think that we're not even at that point where we really know the full story, but I think eventually we'll get there. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us and come back in the future. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the and, discussion. And let, and let us know what you hear that happens at the UN. Just put us in touch with the, with the uh, the NGO because I'd like to find out about the human rights side of it. I think that that will be a tough fight at the UN, but I think it's important now. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Thanks.